Welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we work to recover the dignity and mission of vocation. Learn more at metronmanager.com. Okay, welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Nowlin. Today we have the opportunity to talk with a good friend of mine, Randy Welsh. Randy is a nonstop entrepreneur. He's a leadership expert and highly experienced in the ways of Kingdom Enterprise, particularly. And he's also the co-founder of an amazingly successful company, really a redemptive company called Jibu. And Jibu is a for-profit social enterprise that prioritizes impact in communities. Their hybrid approach, it really stimulates responsible economic growth and independence through local entrepreneurship. And they produce safe drinking water as well as supply other essential products like LPG, liquid petroleum gas, and fortified porridge, and they sell them at affordable prices in the communities where they serve. And Jibu really capitalizes and equips emerging market entrepreneurs to create affordable access to drinking water and other necessities. Pretty exciting enterprise. And Randy, really glad to have you on the program. So welcome. Uh, Thrilled to be here, Jonathan. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, for sure. You know, I've wanted our audience to hear about this incredible Jibu story. It's really a standout example of what we would call redemptive entrepreneurship. But really, to help set the stage for that, you know, before we get to Jibu, can you just help our audience get to know you? Tell us about your journey, because not everybody has walked such a an interesting path and such a diverse path and to be able to do what you guys did in Jibu is is a is a unique uh, set of circumstances and people it's pretty special and yeah so tell us about your journey how you got to doing that and also about the entrepreneurship aspect I mean has that always been a part of who you were yeah you know it's it's, it's a great question Jonathan um I've only it's funny, I've only self-identified as an entrepreneur the last few years. <laughs> when I look back, I, I've been an entrepreneur all my life, even without knowing it. I, I started my first business when I was 12 years old. It was, a, it was a lawn care business. And almost everything I've done has been entrepreneurial one form or another, just real quickly. So I I was uh, licensed to preach in a Methodist church, but never pastored a Methodist church. I had a planning, planting uh, a church uh, group uh, pretty significantly uh, in Pennsylvania over uh, oh, so 17 years. I was a pastor. Uh, always very outward focused, though, in terms of uh, reaching out to the community. And uh, and then uh, ended up getting another master's degree in a technical field, uh, in the computer field. Uh, became a professor at uh, the US, U.S. Air Force Academy, actually. Okay. Uh, and then, this was the early 90s, uh, uh, ended up getting in the right place at the right time, the dot-com boom. Uh, started a number of businesses, sold them pretty successfully. Uh, at the end of near the end of dot com, I started a business, and it tra- because of nine eleven, it transformed into a defense oriented space a space business actually in the space industry uh, for software and system engineering uh, for ground station modernization. I guess okay. is a simple way to say it. So I had an incredible ride from about two thousand one through two thousand ten. Sold that business. 
And I had been involved, very involved in nonprofits all through my life, uh, many boards and lots of international travel. And I'd come to the conclusion that just giving people stuff wasn't the right answer. There needed to be a way. I, my, my, my framing at the time was there's got to be business solutions to poverty. That's sort of a rough way of saying it, but I figured there's got to be a way. I didn't know anybody else talking about it, although there were lots of other people talking about it. I just wasn't in the right groups talking right. about it. I uh, had a short stint with World Vision to help them figure out why many of their water projects were failing. I didn't realize World Vision, by the way, was is the number one water producer in the world. I did not know that. Wow. Um, about half of their, their wells were, were failing. And so I, myself and, and someone else came in to try to help them figure out why that was. And, and sort of our aha there was uh, it needed more ownership on the ground, a true ownership of entrepreneurs and like a better partnership. So mm-hmm. leading up to Jibu, and I'll, I'll just lead up to Jibu, then we can talk about Jibu. Um, yeah, so my son, one of my, I have five children. One of my sons was in the Peace Corps in Morocco, and uh, he got done with his gig the same time I got done with the World Vision gig. His aha coming out of the Peace Corps was sort of the same as mine from different <laughs> respect. Giving people stuff isn't really the answer. It really is a business solution to a lot of these things. So he and I started Jivu together with uh, pretty radical ideas about what needed to change in the water sector. Uh, we had a year and a half of a uh, of uh, time with uh, with bootstrapping. We didn't go out and look for money or anything because we, we were just testing all sorts of different concepts to figure out how we could do it from there. But so that was 2012. Uh, and I'll stop there because I know you're going to talk about Jibu, but that's the lead up to uh, the Jibu story. Wow, that's fascinating. You know, and what does Jibu mean again for people that aren't familiar with this term? Yeah, the word Jibu is J-I-B-U and it means uh, the solution or the answer in Swahili. And okay. uh, we, um, how we chose the word um, is interesting. Uh, my son, uh, when he was, in, he went to Wheaton College and he had an internship in, in Congo. He saw a sign that said, Hesu Ma Jibu. I don't know if I'm saying Ma right, but Hesu Ma Jibu in Swahili. And he's, so he asked me what it meant. It meant Jesus is the answer huh. in Swahili. And so somehow that word stuck in his mind. And so that's how we ended up with, with the name. And um, yeah, we think we're still the only water company in the world that doesn't have aqua or water in our name uh, because we do see the solution as being bigger than water. It's really about local entrepreneurship and partnering properly with local entrepreneurs to provide uh, necess- necessities and gap filling in an affordable way. And we see that it's more the approach and the business model than it is actually the product. Sarah, therefore, solution fits us well, I think. That's fantastic. You know, it's one of, Jibu, in my estimation, is one of the few large-scale redemptive enterprises that I've seen that's that have become truly viable or sustainable. And uh, do you think that that really is due to the, the model that you're talking about, the redemptive entrepreneurship model, uh, I guess more so than the product. Have you seen real traction with this approach? Because I know you've used the term even in the past of like almost like ecosystem or business ecosystem or community ecosystem. Like what's your distinctive with that? Why do you think it's become more viable? That is such a great question. Um, yeah, you know, I think we need to find ways to get away from just thinking that every human need is solved by donations or nonprofits. Okay. And really our approach was there's got to be a way 
to make a more sustainable solution that the locals truly own to solve their own issues. Now, there'll always be a need for jumping in when there's true uh, true emergencies like earthquakes or floods. We You can't monetize those things very right. well. There's always going to be a need to gap fill. But for basic systemic uh, societal issues, I mean, it can be water's one of them. Power would be another. There, there's numbers of things. You know, we think that you, you've got to find solutions that can be owned by the locals fully and sustainable. And we, we actually don't even like the word sustainable. All businesses are more than sustainable. Mm. They're self-propagating. In other words, they're producing enough revenue and profit to continue their own growth without outside benefit, you know, um, donors, right. really. Right, sure. So our goal was always to create a business model that would be scalable on a very large scale worldwide. And that's, hence I mentioned the testing in the, in the early year and a half. That's what we were looking for. We were looking for a globally scalable model and we wanted to stress test it to the max the first year and a half to figure out, you know, what the limits of our model were. Sure. Now you can have all these big ideas, but sometimes your ideas don't work. So it's a matter of figuring out what's really can be is durable enough as a starting point to create that type of sustainable self self propagating model. Yeah, that makes total sense. So with the Jibu concept, you know, what did the journey look like? So you, you have this, you're stress testing it, you're really uh, going for a, a particular model and um, hoping for a particular result, I would suspect. But what did that trajectory look like? What what was that um, story, so to speak, of Jibu from there to kind of what you see going on now? Yeah, you know, so we we sort of broke all the rules, I think, when we first started. I mean, in, in the water sector, traditionally, uh, nonprofits go to the poorest of poor in the rural areas and water's most, mostly given away. And we started with that same approach. How do you do that? We quickly found, though, that the, the urban areas had as much need for, for water, actually more perhaps. Hmm. Water's available in the urban areas, but it's not safe to drink. Sure. And it was things like uh, people bringing their own bottles. We always thought, what's of putting safe water into an unsafe bottle. Mm. You know, it sort of defeats the purpose of, of what the whole thing is. So how do we get an end delivery system? So we had all these ideas of what to do based on input we had on the ground. And what we did was we launched in three countries simultaneously, like with the franchise model idea behind wow. it, assuming that two out of the three countries would fail and we'd learn from the failures as fast as we'd learn from our successes. Mm. And we would then triple down or double down in the country that worked. Those three countries, by the way, were Uganda, Rwanda, and DR Congo. Turns out all three of them failed. <laughs> and, but Rwanda was the, was the closest to succeeding. And so we actually did a relaunch in Rwanda with the lessons that we learned. And uh, we were just about out of money and time when all this happened. And uh, we, we, we had about six months of success. We're like, I think we're on to something. Hmm. And then we, we ended up raising money after that and the money we raised by the way was early was was grant money but it was also equity and mm. you know now any money we've raised is, is pretty much all equity so this was always meant to be a for-profit enterprise but just to jump way ahead to where we're at now so we started uh, we had i think at the end of 2013 or beginning of 2014 we had one viable site we now have fourteen thousand in eight countries wow and maybe in the process of going public uh, with it soon. 
That's fantastic. So in that journey, you mentioned like that initial six months of uh, some kind of tangible success or describable success. You know, what were the markers for that? What did that look like when you're evaluating, hey, is this thing going to even have a life? Does this work? Yeah. You know, um, it's about people uh, more than it is even about technology or the business model in some ways, because um, our ideas were so radical. Uh, it was. It's hard to find. It's hard to find people anywhere in the world, particularly in emerging markets, that both have the business mindset to make money and also the charitable piece of wanting really to serve and not be greedy and selfish with mm. that. So finding the right trustworthy partner that you can trust, and that's why people said our our franchise model wouldn't work. By the way, our when I say franchise, this is truly a franchise model. There's true ownership on the ground of these sites by people. They pay a fee for the right to a territory. People said that would never work because you can't trust people to do it. And we've, well, we can talk about that. It's been incredibly successful when, we, when, you, when you set it up right hmm. and you pick the right people. But it's really about the people. Uh, and of course, there's many other things. There is the technology. There is the water. There's the government regulations. There's corruption. There's, there's lots of other factors that play in. But in the end, having the right people that you partner with on the ground for us was the key. Okay, that makes total sense. And when you're approaching, say, a location or even at that phase, you know, what's the person like that you're looking for as a candidate? What are your indicators that you're looking like for a potential or looking at for a potential partner? And what are the like the main defining characteristics, you could say, of that person? Yeah, that's a great question. It's evolved over time. When we first started, we had pretty rough definition of what that was. I just mentioned a couple of them, you know, which was the business mindset and right. the charitable. We wanted them to have some experience. They've got you got to have great references. They've got to be like hungry, okay. you know, to really grow. And a little, I mean, to be to be an entrepreneur, you have to be willing to take risk. They're taking risk because they're putting money in. This was an unproven concept mm. at the time. So and this is just an observation. Sometimes the people you start with when you start a business aren't the ones you end up growing with. So I say that early on, we 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 did the best we can to pick people. And by the way, I might say too, with a franchise model, even after all these years, our success rate in keeping our franchisees is 98%. We've had to get rid of a few of them for different reasons, but the, wow. the, the, the international average is 80% of franchisees okay. stick. So we're, we're doing pretty well with it. But, the, but to answer your question more specifically, over the last years, what we've done is, we think that no matter how well we vet people, uh, what we see with our eyes, what we hear, the only way to really test if someone is a good fit to be a franchise is to give them it, to put them in a, in a small business to see how they do. So we have franchises and we have micro franchises. Hmm. So a micro a franchise is the one who produces the water. And I probably need to explain our business model. I will, okay. you know, you know yeah. later here. But a franchise is someone who's producing water and selling to about a one mile square territory. A micro franchise is just a storefront that's not producing water, that's buying water from the franchisee at a discount within their territory and selling at the same price to the uh, customers, the customers in that area. And so before someone can become a franchise, they go through all the rigor of as if they were gonna be a franchisee, but they first have to prove to us they can sell water and they can serve customers and they're honest and all those things in a small setting where if they fail, it's not the end of the world. Wow. That's wisdom for us or for them. So it's, it, we do, we do because we have so many people that want this business because it's so such a great business for the franchisees. 
Wow. So it's even competitive to get these spots, so to speak, right. with, for right. people that would like to partner with you guys or franchise from, right. from Jibu. Right. Wow. What an incentive. Sounds like some of the models you see in the U.S. I mean, Chick-fil-A comes to mind in different ones, right. where it's very right. uh, in-demand right spot so yeah tell us a little bit more about the about the model itself because one of the things i hear from uh, redemptive entrepreneurs and people with these great ideas of how they want to impact communities whether it's internationally or even locally is they've got the idea but they don't have really a a concept to build out on like they're kind of just winging it trying to see right. what works and so for you guys as a as a model as a business model what did you land on and why Okay, in a typical franchise model, the franchisee pays about 90% of the upfront cost of a launch. If it's a McDonald's or a Subway or whatever, and the, the franchisor pays about 10%. Okay. In Jibu, our franchisees are can't get the type of money needed to do the launch. They're not credit worthy. They're typically, you know, very young. And so we have flipped the franchise model on its head. We pay 90% of the upfront cost of a launch they pay 10%. Okay. And let me tell you a little bit more how that works. So what the franchisee, when they put their ten, their 10% in, that they're buying is they're buying the right to a exclusive territory to sell Jibu water and some other things that we sell in about a one to two square mile area in a, uh, a pretty highly populated area in a city, at least 10,000 people. So they put that in, then we build out a storefront uh, we we don't build a store. We don't drill for water, by the way. We take existing water sources. If that storefront doesn't have water, we, we work with the city authorities according to their master plan to pipe water into that store. We test the water. The water is always unsafe to drink, but in different ways in different sites. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's it's heavy metal. Sometimes it's it's bacteria. Sometimes it's different things. So, so we install water filtration equipment that's appropriate for that particular water source to make it safe to drink. And then they bottle the water, they filter the water, the franchisees filter and bottle the water and seal it in a, in a large bottle that actually has a tap on it. And that bottle and actually that water being sold is actually overseen by government agencies in each country, sort of like the FDA, because governments, governments care about safe water. Sure. And so um, the, the franchisees from that point on, so they put in their money up front, we do the, we do the build out. And then they hire their employees, they pay the rent on the building, they do everything else from there, okay? And they, their businesses uh, typically across all these countries, their they're break even and then starting to make money is about an average in six months. Okay. So that's what everything else they're doing. And it's pretty, pretty much the, a true 95% of the time they're within pretty close to that. So it's a very profitable business for them. How we get paid is through a flat rate per liter for the water that flows through their filtration system. Okay. So we have technology built in to monitor that and we can tell what bottles are using and everything else. We make sure that that, so, and then they pay us once a month, Okay. Uh, you know, for the water that flows through their system. So, so basically here, I guess to summarize this, we're, we're more than a water company. We're really a financial, uh, 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 I won't say lending because it's not really lending, but financial asset. We're the bank. Right. <laughs> we're functioning basically as the bank. And that's part of the innovation in our business model. And that's, again, a risk we took of not getting paid. We do get paid, though. And, you know, it takes us about two years to break even on our 
you know, are building, but then they're paying us a perpetual royalty that's a little higher than other to typical franchise models, but it's equal in the end because they didn't, we're, we're getting paid back basically for all our investment up front, a bunch of other things we do that other things right. don't do. So I hope that's clear enough. Sorry. Yeah. To a little bit there. No, it's, that's a fascinating model and not one that personally I've ever come across before. Um, definitely a kingdom distinctive and definitely something that kept you traveling for a lot of years. Is that right? I remember you used to spend a lot of time in Africa. Uh, was it, I mean, people look at these kind of things and they think, yeah, I could do that. Or, hey, that's a great idea. But then they don't realize the amount of hours you have to spend on an airplane or the amount of tromping around in foreign countries. I mean, it's pretty involved for you as a pioneer of this, wasn't it? Yeah, no question. It, me and actually my son even more so. My son li has lived in Africa since about the beginning of the business. He lives in Uganda. So okay. he's the one that's paid the higher price. I was going back and forth four or five times a year, maybe three weeks, four weeks at a time. So during that time, I really didn't have a life either place. Um, wow. So he, he's actually the, the rock star here, my son. Amazing. Yeah. He's, how old is he right now? He is 20, 35 years old, but okay. he was doing this since he was 25. So wow. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's a massive enterprise at this point, massive international enterprise. So he's the one that's doing it. So um, so my role when I would go was, was a number of things. Uh, like I was actually the main one doing the fundraising in the U.S. That's why I was in the U.S. mostly and in, in Europe doing fundraising when we're raising equity, different rounds we've raised. But when I was in Africa, uh, two things I was doing was uh, typically I was the one um, exploring and launching in new countries for growth. Okay. So I go and figure out, you know, like how do you go from zero to one? So I was continually, you know, launch, you know, building new businesses. And we had a, we have a model we have direct franchising models. Sorry to get into a little nuance here, but we also have what's called an area master franchiser model where in some countries we operate, we identify a top business person who pays us for the right to own the Jibu brand in that country. Okay. And they're the ones then working with the franchisees directly under our auspices. So identifying you know business partners in some of those countries is some of what I did. Sometimes we launched directly. Um, and then I was also dealing with uh, on the government level my uh, my gray hair uh, helped out there. You and I over the years have talked a lot about, you know, redemptive enterprise and and kind of the kingdom approach to doing everything from clean water to uh, nonprofit work and stuff. And how have you have how is the concept of like the redemptive concept uh, come into play in your life? Has that was that something you always walked in or was it something that grew on you or you came to later in life? Like what was a process for developing kind of this kingdom approach or this redemptive approach to even something as uh, seemingly mundane as water supply. What did that look like? You know, I had a dramatic conversion to Jesus uh, when I was 17 years old in high school. And I don't know what it was. I think I always had seeds of it. I'm not sure I had thought it through theologically, but it was always an instinct that I had. My theology about it now, in, in, in essence, is in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I feel like what drives me is bringing pieces of slices of heaven to earth to give people a taste of what heaven would be. For instance, wow. I guarantee you there's no impure, unsafe water in heaven. Yeah. You know, so this is a platform when we serve people and love people. It's a platform that gives us uh, an opportunity 
or sometimes the right to, to speak to uh, the gospel and deeper things. But I'm also, and, and this is something that's, that's, that's sometimes misunderstood, even if I don't get a chance to preach the gospel from, from what I'm doing, I'm, I go to bed happy every night that I'm actually serving and bringing a piece of heaven to earth. Amen. And that's, that's the way I've been, whether I was a pastor or not, when I was in the space industry, other things. Like I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make this world a better place and make people's lives better and be someone that can be trusted to, uh, to bring help to people. Yeah, it is a real uh, unique way of doing life. You could say that not everyone's really grasped. I really appreciate that, and that does speak to a pretty entrenched um, redemptive framework. And that's something that I love to see emerge in a lot of these new leaders that I'm working with and coaching and training is developing this redemptive lens for the world around them. And I, and I really appreciate the level of, uh, of sincerity that you have with this and how you've actually made it a factor in how you do living and life. And I, that, that is an inspiration. You know, if you were um, approached by a young entrepreneur, somebody's got maybe missional inclinations, they, they're wrestling about what does this mean to do this in the marketplace or a, a kingdom enterprise, or maybe they bring up the term of like business's mission, these kind of things people wrestle with. You know, what is your insight? You know, what's the insight in your heart these days in this season in spiritual history and globally? You know, what would you tell them or advise them on how to move forward? Trust your own instincts on how you want to do the business. And there's different ways to do it. Um, I am not a typical BAM person in my philosophy. Uh, I, I, I like business as mission. Uh, I'm more business is mission. Right. I'm BAM, I guess. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with BAM, but for me, it's just not authentic enough. I can't, I, I, I wouldn't feel great myself doing a business that was really just a guise for the gospel. And I, I know people use scripture about Paul being a tent maker and all that. True, he did all those things to support his ministry, but it was right up front what he was doing. And for me, um, uh, yeah, it's just. It, but so for me, I, I think, I think that's one thing people have to think through: Are you Bam or are you Bim? Hmm. Okay. <laughs> and, and and the second thing is: Are you nonprofit or for profit? Okay. And a lot of people um, in the nonprofit world, they. That if if you really if you if your mission is not monetizable by revenues that you can generate from your customers or consumers, that's fine to be a nonprofit. But I think some people fool themselves that they sort of slap on a business model, a, a financial business model that doesn't really work with the nonprofit sometimes, and then they end up failing. So it's like. If, if you want to be that, that, that's just fine. I mean, there's so many great nonprofits that relations and everything that will be around for another century, I'm sure, because they're needed. But if you're going to go down the route of being a for-profit, then you really have to think through the financial model. Because just like all business, I don't think we can get a pass just because we're Christians and be sloppy about this. I mean, you know, when you start a business, people are relying on you for an income, customers sure. are relying, especially if you're selling, a, you know, an essential product. You may not be selling an essential product, but even still, you want that business to be generational. You want to make generational impact. 
you know, and so you really have to think through, um, how are you going to not just make money? How are you going to continue to make money? And you may not know the answer to that, but you've got to be nimble enough to pivot and figure that out and not apologize for making money as if there's some contrast between that sure. and being charitable. You know, and I'll, I'll just I'll just say this one thing. I mean, one of the things I say frequently about Jibu is our goal is to make money and make an, make impact without compromising either. So I think there's ways to make money and make impact together. And that's what the trick is of figuring out business to me in a, when it's re, in a redemptive way. Wow, that's excellent. Excellent stuff. And yeah, I definitely have observed over many years that you are a big picture thinker and you really, um, I feel, understand the human condition and you have a lot of insight into the kingdom, how it operates, what God wants to see happen. And I think it would be good to get your advice, maybe on a big picture sense for the church, like the church at large. Uh, where do you th see things are at in the mission of God, so to speak, or in this season in spiritual history? And what would you encourage or advise the church, the body of Christ, to be about? Like, what is God doing in your estimation? Well, I wish I had the full answer to that. I mean, I think we're in a, in a pretty tough uh, space. I always look at it as sort of like, I feel like the space we're in right now is between waves. When you stand in the ocean, you know, a wave will hit you and it draws you in. And then you know, when the wave is receding, it sort of pulls you out. But there's that spot in between where, like, the water's sort of calm for a second or two. Mm -hmm. And it's, you don't know what the next wave's going to be or which way the water's going to move. And I, I, I sort of feel that. It's the first time, really the last, I don't know, 10 years I've sort of felt that way. That we're, there's, there's a new way we have to figure out how to be relevant in our society and really make a difference and speak the language of the people. Jesus became one of us. I think we need to become the people around us without compromising our values, obviously. So this is why I think business and, and folks in business are so critical. They've been, I think business people have been considered second class. It's sort of like, you know, the, the, the top tier is if you're in quote ministry and you're paid to do ministry, somehow that's considered more relevant to the world. I don't believe that. Mm. I, I believe actually the folks on the front line doing the, just like in a, in an army, the folks on the front, you can say the generals are the ones that are most important. I think it's the group of people out in the front lines that win the battles in the end, their, their grit and, and, and all that. And actually one, one of, one of the scriptures I, I, I feel really strongly about that it sort of captures it's in Ephesians four and it talks about, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And some people interpret that as ministry within the church. I don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. I see the ministries outside. So I see spiritual leaders' job to equip business people to be successful in their businesses, not so they get more tithes, but, but they can make more impact in the world, not just as gospel preachers, but make this world a better place by the excellence of their businesses. I think that in itself, the Lord's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant to many business people that probably don't get appreciated in the church world. I think that's one of, it's not the only, it's one of the things that I think we need to get better at if we're going to uh, make a difference as, as church, big C. 
Wow, speaking my language right there. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's what my heart is all about as well. I really resonate yeah. with that. Man, Randy, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your insights and your story. It's going to add a lot of value to this audience and probably bring a lot of answers to questions that people have. So thanks for taking the time to be on the program. I really appreciate it. It's been a blast and fun, Jonathan, and I wish you the best. It's, it's great to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Metron Manager Podcast, presented by Jonathan Nowlin and the Metron Manager Project. Remember, God has given you permission and a commission to work. Learn more at metronmanager.com.